Father, you've seen fit to bless us with a beautiful morning, the provision of a building suitable to our purposes, and Lord, most importantly, you've given us the hearts and the minds of men and women committed to following you and desiring to spend time in your word this morning. Father, each of us could, in our own way, by ourselves, sit and study your word, but we know ourselves, Father, we know so well that we would not do that. So often we would find other things to use our time on. But the gathering of the body, Father, compels us. It compels us to join together. It compels us, Father, to turn our hearts and minds toward you. And it compels us, Father, to spend time in your word. And so for that reason, we know, Father, that your word tells us we are not to forsake the gathering together. You knew too well, Lord, that left to our own, we would not follow you. And I thank you, Father, for the men and women who have come here. I thank you, Father, for our devotion as a body to your word. May we go into your word today with the Holy Spirit's guidance. May we see what you've brought, brought before us today and understand, Father, it was prepared for each one of us. It is the message for us. Let us hear it with our own ears and let it sink into our hearts according to the Holy Spirit's power in us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let's go into Luke chapter 4. One day, many uh, years ago, many, many years ago, and in just a brief moment, all of history was both changed and set by the decisions of one man. A real man, a very real man, a man who lived and lived in essentially perfect surroundings. His name was Earth, although in the Hebrew we pronounce it Adam. And without provocation, without threat, without temptation, he made a simple decision, a decision to disobey the only authority he knew, the only rule he had ever been given. And when he did, thousands and thousands of years of misery and suffering and death were immediately set in motion. And that's the story of the fall. We know it only too well. Now, when God gave Adam the freedom that he had, the freedom to make the decision he made, God could have judged that decision in that moment. He could have come down seen what Adam had done, and immediately pronounced judgment on that choice, on that disobedience. But there was only one penalty available to God. Had God decided to bring judgment to Adam in that moment, he had only one way he could do that. Because Adam brought sin into his body. He made it a part of who he was. A body that would forever contain sin. It could not be taken out of his body at that point. His body was corrupt. And because he had sin in his body, he could never again be in God's presence. They were eternally separated on that basis. And because all men would come from this first man and share in that nature, therefore all humanity now had the same problem, the same distance from God. So if God were to judge Adam, there was no judgment possible except eternal separation from God. He could not make that body that was now corrupt, incorrupt, except by putting it to death. Through eternal death only could he punish. But God desired to see mankind another way. He did not want to lose that connection with, with his creation forever. And so, he decided that though we deserved it, he would go a different route than judgment. And he chose to respond with a plan, a plan that can only be described, others have called it this, amazing grace. A plan to restore mankind, to restore the human race altogether, and do it through a new Adam, that he would produce a new Adam who would not fail the way the first one did. This new Adam would be the way through which he would rebirth the human race. And he would use the obedience of the second Adam to substitute 
for the disobedience of the first Adam. And we know Jesus was that second Adam sent to earth, the one who would not repeat the mistakes of the first Adam, the one who would rather obey the Father in all things. And that's going to bring us to our lesson today in Luke. Luke chapter 4 is the time in which God makes clear through His Son that His Son was a second Adam, not like the first. Let's go to verse 1 of chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry, and the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I will give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left them until an opportune time. In the last chapter of Luke, chapter 3, we witnessed how the Spirit descended upon Jesus as he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. And we mentioned at that time that He came down in an earthly form to provide this earthly ministry that God had determined that the Son would provide. And in this new body, in this new form, Jesus felt all the emotions of real men. He felt all the temptations that you and I feel in our body. He knew all the compelling nature of physical pain. He had all the same sensations we have in a body that reacts exactly like yours and I, my body does today. And he was also limited, we said, by a physical nature. He had a real nature. He was not some image of man. He was not some, you know, supernaturally formed man that that was nothing like you and I. He was exactly like you and I were in his physical form. And he relied on the Spirit, as we are supposed to, for that matter, to comfort him, to guide him, to strengthen him. The story here reflects that. And it did provide him with supernatural insight, his ability to know the heart of another man, for example, to know what somebody else was thinking But that ability, though he was God, was limited by his form, and so he relied on the Holy Spirit, the other part of the Trinity, to give him that insight. And because he was without sin, he he had no barrier, he had no limitations in his reliance on the Spirit. And so at the beginning of chapter 4, he's following the leading of the Spirit into the wilderness. Now the wilderness here, you want to get a picture in your mind of what wilderness looks like if you've never been to the Middle East. We're talking about the area to the west of the Jordan River, probably up in the hills, similar, in fact, to what David himself must have been living in when he was trying to escape Saul and survive in the desert. It would be like high West Texas mountain desert, as best as we could uh, imagine it. Hot, dusty, no water for the most part, very, very hard to find water, and as you see in the text, no food. And he wanders there for 40 days. The text tells us that Jesus ate nothing during this time, And we only know from our own recent experience with the woman who was brain dead and they were trying to take off her feeding supply, etc. 
you're not going to live a whole long time without food and without water. The assumption is that he had water because he lived 40 days. But 40 days puts you at the very limits of what the body can live with or live to without food. This is a significant strain on his body. This, don't minimize this. It's not like he just has got a little hunger pangs. He's probably so weak he can barely stand up, if at all. Now, during this time as well, we're told that Jesus encountered temptation by the devil. Listen to the words there, though. If you were to go compare, for example, in Mark's account of this same event, it's clear he was being tempted throughout the 40 days. These three accounts we see represented in this text, they're sort of the culmination of the temptation. They're not the only temptation. For 40 days, he's starving himself to death while encountering a devil who would do anything he could to trip him up in that event. You think it's hard enough to not eat for a day. Would you do that for 40 days and someone the whole time tempting you to eat? Making opportunity available to you. Who knows what the devil was doing? Now, we don't know exactly what kind of temptation he was suffering, but I imagined it was designed to probe every weakness he might have had as a man in his body. Now, since we know the Spirit was responsible for leading Christ into this experience, into the desert, into the wilderness, it's got to raise a number of questions for us. At least it should. Number one... Why put Jesus through these temptations? Why is the Spirit bringing him into this kind of an experience? What's the point? Maybe even a better question. Why tempt him at all? Why would God the Father, through the Spirit, want his Son to be tempted? It almost seems counter to what we hear in Scripture where God says he is not to be tested by us. Why is he doing it to his own Son? And as we listen to the story in Luke, we can't help but notice some of the parallels to past events in Scripture. For example... Did you notice the period of wandering in the desert for 40 days? That must remind you of wandering in the desert for 40 years, right? For the nation of Israel. It's very similar, in fact, to the same experience. Even the temptation to eat in the face of, the, of hunger seems connected to Jesus' circumstances, or it seems to connect his circumstances to the temptation in the garden that Adam experienced. Wouldn't you agree? The temptation to eat something you're not supposed to eat? That itself... Seems familiar. Is God trying to show us something here? Well, you know me. Certainly he's trying to show us something here through both of those experiences. And we'll look at those parallels. But first, let's take note of the entire scene. The scene that Luke provides here. After 40 days, Jesus, obviously, he's at his lowest point in this experience. And without the strength, as I said, to probably even stand, he probably wouldn't be able to do anything not except for the Spirit. He's now being placed in this position of temptation. I don't know if you've ever experienced real hunger. In fact, I don't know if you've ever done things like fasted for a day or so or, or in my, gone through wilderness training in the military. I've done both of those things. In fact, in my own experience, when I've fasted, no food, only water, I've gone usually about 24 hours. And you get hungry, but it doesn't, it doesn't wear you down that much. One day I went 48 hours. Felt, I felt compelled to do that. And I'll tell you, at the end of that second day, as I woke up on the third morning, I got up out of bed, I could barely stand. You know, you get so easily dizzy and weak, you, 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 have, you can't, you have to take everything slowly. Your memory starts to really play tricks on you. you. You can't remember something you just said. Your body is so weak without energy. Um, you, you just have this fatigued feeling at all times. That's after 48 hours. Just two days. In the military, I was at a point where I had to take a week in the wilderness of basically wilderness training, as if you've landed behind enemy lines kind of training and you're trying to escape the enemy. 
And they don't give you any food for a week. They give you some ways to get food, and they throw a meal at you about halfway through so you don't starve to death. But basically, you're on your own for about a week in this training experience. I can remember sitting with friends there who were going through it with me. We had a break. We are just sitting around in the middle of the day. You know what our conversations were every time? The toppings we were going to have on the pizza when we got back from this training episode. And we'd sit there just imagining food. We'd sit there just imagining what the meal would be like. Your body begins to push you toward what it wants. In other words, it's not that our minds were doing it. It was more physical. It was a body experience. It was the flesh saying, you need food, and to make sure you go get it, I'm going to drive every thought you have toward that direction the whole time. And it's an amazing thing. It, it's, I, would, I would start finding things edible and interesting to eat that I never would have eaten before. You know, it's different. The taste wasn't even a problem anymore. You just wanted it. And I can see now why somebody in that position would eat things. You wonder, well, how could you ever eat that? Well, you starve yourself five days and then you'll see. Hunger is a test, a real test. And your willingness to deny yourself food when you otherwise could have eaten it is probably the purest test of your will over your flesh. We talk about that in other contexts, right? Like lusting or in other aspects of how our body impacts our life. But there is nothing like hunger. Even the, the drive of sexual desire pales in comparison to the drive for food when you're hungry. So the purest test of whether you have mind over flesh, whether your spirit is ruling over you or whether your flesh is ruling over you, is in the context of hunger. I think our society is a good reflection of that problem right now. When, when Scripture speaks of crucifying the flesh, it's talking about this struggle, about Resisting what the body wants by its very nature and listening instead to what the Spirit directs us to want. That is the struggle that Scripture talks about. And Scripture tells us that that struggle of living a godly life comes down to this fight between what our sinful body wants us to do and what that new Spirit given by God wants us to do. And so this experience, this fight that we now have in our bodies is often one we assume we can't win. A lot of Christians I encounter today will tell you that their experience in this life, in this body, is that I can't wait to get to the new body so that I can finally be done with all that this body wants me to do that I know is wrong. It's as if we've given up trying in this world, in this body, and we'll simply resign ourselves to the thought that until I get the new body, you really there's no point because I can't possibly win. But this story, this account of Christ is designed, at least in part, one of its reasons to show you that you can train yourself, and it's not magic, it is effort. It is a conscious training of self to not give in to flesh and to appeal to the Spirit. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9.24. He says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way, not as beating the air, but I discipline my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Paul uses his wonderful analogy, a sports analogy. You've got to love sports analogies. Paul says, when runners race, they all know that only one person finishes the race in first place. Do you know what they call the second place finisher? A loser. I mean, to put it blank, bluntly, if you don't win the race, you lost the race. 
So Paul's point is, they all are working equally hard to ensure they come in first, because anything short of first, then you've spent all that effort for nothing. For nothing. And we have an imperishable wreath, crowns, rewards, whatever, they, whatever form they will take, in eternity, that's on the line in our race. We're not racing to get into eternity. We're racing for the rewards that will be available in eternity. And he says, to ensure that he finishes the line first, he's going to make sure that he trains for that event. You know, your body right now, your body is not naturally lean and strong. Don't mean to blow your self-perception here. I don't hope I'm not ruining your day. Your body is not naturally fast. Your body is not naturally able to burn oxygen easily. These are not natural qualities. The athlete who wants to win that race has to create those qualities in his body in order to ensure that he'll win. They're not natural. They're not unnatural, but they're, they take work, is my point. You're not born with those qualities. It's no different spiritually, folks. Your body, spiritually, is just like your body athletically. Your body is slow, lazy, soft, and out of shape. Unless you work it into a different shape. Paul's analogy says if we expect to win our spiritual battle, battle merely by desire merely because we want to win, merely because we hope to overcome all those things in our life we don't like about ourselves, all those traits and habits and tendencies. He says, if you're just hoping, you're like the person who enters the race never having exercised a day in his life, and you're hoping you'll come in first. It's, it's nonsense. It, it makes no sense. But we take that same thinking and we put it into a spiritual context and we say, why shouldn't I be able to overcome all these things in my life just because I want to? It doesn't work that way. It's a training process. And I don't just mean a training of the mind. Sometimes Christians take it just to that level. You want to be a better Christian? You want to live a better life? You want to avoid temptation? You want to avoid all those things that drag you down into an ungodly lifestyle? Okay, I just need to get my mind straight is sometimes the perception. I just need to study my Bible enough. Well, yes, you need to do that. I just need to pray enough. Yes, you probably need to do that too. But it's not enough to do that. It's not just a mind issue. There is a fleshly, bodily aspect to your struggle. You need to work on that as well, which means denying yourself things you probably don't habitually deny. It means considering the discipline that must take place in the body. And in the case of Christ in the wilderness, the issue is one of hunger, of not eating. And I would tell you that fasting as a precept of Scripture is largely directed toward mastering your body. Because if you can master your body's drive over hunger, the rest of the drives are less difficult to master. Some may find that hard to believe, but try it. Try mastering your hunger in terms of being able to deny yourself food and watch how much difficulty you have with that compared to other issues in your life. Over what you listen to, watch, uh, how you train your tongue, all of those things can come if you've trained your body through fasting. James talks about tongue being the most difficult part of the body to master. He's right, but I'll tell you that the tongue is intimately involved in eating as well, is it not? How many people eat because it tastes good versus eat because they're hungry? That is the common experience. So delivering Jesus over to this harsh almost exaggerated time of bodily discipline, this 40 days of fasting, the Father places Jesus in a position where His reliance on the Father and the Father's Spirit was so clearly evident, it's undeniable. We know that He's depending on the Spirit here and nothing else. And Jesus' body, though it had no sin, is still normal flesh driven for food and He's still desiring to eat. 
I think our, connection, our culture has lost its connection between the regular discipline over the desires of the body and a spiritual walk as a Christian. As I said earlier, Paul says this in Galatians 5.16. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. That's simple enough. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh, for they are in opposition to one another, so that you may do the things that you please or may not do the things that you please. Now listen to what he says here. Here are the deeds of the flesh. He says, the deeds of the flesh. In other words, if you want to know whether you're really crucifying the flesh, whether you're really walking by the Spirit or whether you're just walking around with the Spirit, there's a difference. Here's what you look like when you're walking according to your body. Immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmities and strife. Jealousy. Outbursts of anger. Disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like that, he says, of which I I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul's not saying that if you fall down and you do one of these things, you're disqualified from eternal security or living with God forever in heaven. No, he's saying that if you practice these things, you're making clear where your heart is. If your life is defined by these behaviors... You're an unbeliever, by definition. That's what unbelievers do. So if you're concerned about whether or not you have a true confession of faith, look at your life. Did I just describe you? Then you probably have something to be concerned about. He says the fruit of the Spirit, though, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We live by the Spirit. So let us also walk by the Spirit. So I know, I think you can understand why Jesus is being tempted, right? You can understand now why the Father is putting Jesus in this place. He wants to display His amazing self-control that comes from yielding to the Spirit. And he demonstrates his willingness to rely entirely on the Spirit rather than satisfying the urge of his flesh. Now, I said earlier this had some parallels, right? Forty days, forty years. Not eating something when you're not supposed to, like Adam chose to do. Well, Paul, in the verses I read earlier out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when he says, I discipline my body like a runner in a race, I read the last verses out of chapter 9. The next thing Paul says at the beginning of chapter 10 is this. Listen to what he says. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. The rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. Now, these things happened as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Paul himself makes the connection between a disciplining of the body, denying the flesh, and the experience that the Israelites had 40 years wandering in the desert. He's beginning to make the connection for us that what Jesus is now doing for 40 days stands in opposition, not just to what Adam did in a moment, but what the nation of Israel did in their 40 years in the desert that Jesus could stand in opposition to show the difference. And it's designed to evoke a memory in the way the story is told. So let's look at the three specific temptations. 
All three of the specific temptations mentioned in Luke can be connected with what the Jewish people experienced when they were in the desert. For example, in Exodus, God calls Israel His Son, His firstborn when He's speaking to Pharaoh. In fact, when He prepares to destroy the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, God says that because you have done what you've done to my firstborn, Israel, I will now take your firstborn. And in the story we read today, the beginning of chapter 4 of Luke, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around in the desert. He is the Son of God, being led in the desert, just as the nation of Israel, God called His Son, being led in the desert. Secondly, we noticed already the 40-day reference in comparison. 40 is a number often used in Scripture for trial or testing. You know, Noah was in the ark while it rained for 40 days. Moses was fasting himself 40 days in the desert before he was called out. Jews wandered for 40 years in the desert. Moses was 40 years in the land of Midian before he was called into ministry. 40 is commonly a time of testing or trial. And Jesus' period in the desert includes temptation, just like Israel's experience in the desert. Israel was experiencing temptation too, the time they were in the desert. James 1.3 tells us that God never tempts us to sin, but He does test us. What's the difference between temptation and testing? Well, in a nutshell, it's a matter of what your purpose is. If I'm tempting you to sin, my goal is for you to sin. If I'm testing you, though, my goal is for you not to sin. My desire is that you would withstand the test, come out of it stronger, having proven not just to me but to yourself that you can withstand temptation. The difference is in your motive. God never tempts us to sin, but He may test us to see where our heart lies. Temptation, on the other hand, is the calling card of Satan. Satan is all about trying to tempt us into sin. Jesus' first temptation from Satan was over the issue of food. Now, naturally, Satan is going to attack Jesus' weak point. Here's Jesus obeying the Spirit, obeying the Father, therefore, in the desert, not eating. Jesus comes to him and says, or Satan comes to him and says, turn these stones into food. It's an old trick. It's one he's used ever since the garden. Let me show you what I mean by that. He's not just working on one level here. Yes, he's trying to get him to break his fast. He's trying to get him to want to eat. And so, in that way, he's doing basically the obvious thing. It's simply Satan's attempt to get Jesus to obey him over the Father's direction that he fasts. That's obvious. What's not so obvious, though, by the wording, is another more important issue that Satan is actually placing before Christ. The wording will leave you with the impression that Satan is asking Jesus to prove that he is the Son of God. That's the way the language reads. But that's not really the right way to read it. The statement in the Greek, in verse 3, he says, If you are the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. It's expressed in something called the first class condition in the Greek. First class condition. In other words, I'll read it. We don't really have a condition like this in our English uh, in the English language, in the way we conjugate verbs. But if I were to try to refashion that sentence more closely to the Greek intended meaning, it would be like this. You are the Son of God, therefore tell these stones. And so on. It's first class, meaning it's an established fact. If Satan had been in doubt about whether Jesus was really the Son of God or not, he would have phrased it with greater uncertainty. He would have used a Greek tense that would read something like this. 
If you were the Son of God, you could tell these stones to become bread. If you were the Son of God, then you could do this. No, he says, because you are the Son of God, do these things. What's he trying to do here? He's telling him, you are the Son of God. Come on. You're the Son of God. You don't need to suffer like this. You're the Son of God. You can make your own food anytime. This is pointless. There's no reason for you to suffer like this. He's trying to place some doubt in Jesus' mind about the Father's love for him and about the purpose of this trial. It's the same trick he used in the garden. It's the old ploy of pride. You're, you're the Son of God. You don't need to have to go through this. The Son of God could have made his own food by now. He used this same trick on the woman. He also used this same trick on the ones who wandered in the desert, the Jews. God reminded the Israelites of how much He gave them a similar test when they were in the desert. In, in Deuteronomy 8.3, God said this, He humbled you and let you be hungry. He fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. In the desert, God humbled the Israelites, we're told, by allowing them to become hungry. And then He provided a food that no man before them had ever seen. Food we call manna. It was a perfect food from God. And it was designed so they would understand just how much they depended on God for their food. So much so that their lives themselves depended on God. But do you remember how they responded in that day? It's actually one of the more humorous stories of the Scripture. Do you remember how the Jews responded having been given... Manna after experiencing hunger. In Numbers 11:4, this is what we hear. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone and there's nothing at all to look at except this manna. <laughs> Sounds like your kids, doesn't it? And then in verse 18, he says, God says this to Moses, Say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the ears of the Lord, saying, Oh, that someone would give us meat to eat, for we were well fed in Egypt. Therefore, the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall eat, not one day, not two days, nor five days, nor ten days, nor twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. Because you have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before Him saying, Why did we leave Egypt? You want to do that with your kids too, don't you? <laughs> Admit it. The Israelites' mistakes were instigated, did you notice at the beginning, by greedy desires? First verse I read, the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. That word can also be translated lustful desires. There are these bodily, fleshly, lustful desires overriding what in their minds should have been eternal gratefulness. And leading them to be not grateful for the fact that they had food and were out of slavery, but to actually wish they were back under the slavery of the pharaohs so that they could have meat. So that they could have meat. God ends by saying what they said was not the problem as much as what it revealed. It revealed a heart that didn't trust or love God. It questioned His motives. It questioned whether He was truly doing the right thing for them or not. And similarly, Jesus, had He given in to Satan's trick, 
to say, yes, you're right. What do you think? What am I thinking? I'm the son of God. I don't need to do this. Yeah, stone turn into bread. Had he given in to that ploy by Satan, he'd have been denying the sufficiency of God as well. He'd have been denying the motives. He'd have been questioning the motives of his father for having put him through that experience. He would have been making the same mistake. And of course, he's not going to do that. It's interesting to me that the same thing Christ says to Satan in response to Satan's temptation here is Deuteronomy 8.3. The very verse out of the Old Testament that deals with the exact same experience the Israelites had when they were in the desert. God making that connection for us very clearly. But of course Satan doesn't give up. His next appeal to Jesus it takes a slightly different approach. He says in the scripture that he takes Jesus. We're not sure what that means if it's literally a physical transportation of Christ or in some other way a vision. But it says he takes Jesus, puts him in a vantage point where he can see all the world's kingdoms. All the world's kingdoms. And he promises that Jesus can have all that he sees. Essentially the world. That's an interesting offer, isn't it? Specifically, Satan says that all that Jesus sees belongs to Satan. It was handed over to him. But he can give it to whomever he pleases. Is he lying again? Is Satan lying here? Does he actually have ownership of all these kingdoms, much less the ability to give it to anyone he asks? Well, you might be surprised, but no, he's not lying. He's not lying. When Adam sinned, he lost dominion over the world, the dominion God himself gave Adam when he created the world and put Adam in it. Hebrews tells us that through fear of death, which was introduced because of our sin, Satan now has control over all unbelievers in the world. They all are slaves to him by their fear of death. And Paul even calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. This is his world for a time. To the limits God establishes. And Satan could, in fact, have given Jesus the same power to rule over the unbelievers in the world if only he agreed to Satan's terms, to worship him instead of the Father. Now, you might look at me, and you may look at the text, and you may say, what a stupid offer. I mean, Jesus is already king of the world by virtue of, son of being son of God. Why in the world would he fall for this? Where is there any temptation in this? How does this tempt Jesus in any way? What's appealing about it? Well, Jesus had come to the earth to gain exactly what Satan offered him. That's why he came. He came to redeem, to purchase, to gain control over the world, to wrest it out of Satan's control. But the Father's plan for how he's going to obtain those things has one small little detail. It includes excruciating torture and death in order for him to gain that thing he's come to gain, in order for him to purchase it legitimately, in order for him to inherit this kingdom. But Satan was offering that same thing, in a sense, to Christ without need for any of that suffering. In his body, Jesus knew exactly what he was going to go through and he had, in a moment, the opportunity to give up all of that pain and suffering and gain what he ostensibly came for through simply worshiping Satan. And he would have been able to avoid all that fleshly pain. Now, obviously what Satan was offering couldn't compare with what he would gain on the cross. But in a sense, it had that same quality, kingdoms, the ruling of the world. And I have to believe in that moment that Jesus in his body, the same body you and I have, the same one that experiences pain, in that moment he must have felt at least a momentary thought of, 
what it would have been like to escape that suffering. I don't believe he ever thought about doing it, obviously, but I do believe his body experienced in a moment the opportunity to escape pain. Jesus, though, responded and said with the words from Deuteronomy that were also spoken to the nation of Israel. He spoke to them and said, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. You know, Jesus' choice of Scripture reflects another poor episode, poor episode in the history of the nation of Israel. God warned the nation to seek Him and seek Him alone and not to mix with other people they would find when they moved into the Promised Land, if you know the story, in the book of Joshua. And He tells them at the very end of the, of the Torah, at the very end of Deuteronomy, before we get into the book of Joshua as the nation of Israel enters the Promised Land, at the very end of the Torah, He says, when you go into the land, you're going to find ungodly people. You're going to find people who if you associate with them, if you allow your daughters to marry them, they're going to pollute you. They're going to draw you into idol worship. They're going to draw you into worshiping Baal, essentially Satan himself. And it's going to bring your culture down and it's going to bring great calamity upon you. But of course, Israel ignored the warning. That's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel, just as God warned. And likewise, we too are so often drawn away in worshiping essentially our ungodly culture. I don't know that I'm talking here about Christians straying to the point of unbelief, not having salvation. That's not possible even. But it does imply certainly that the consequences of that kind of straying are just as, op- just as apparent for us as it were for the nation of Israel. That we can, if we worship the culture we're in, if we let it pull us out of where we know we should be, if we let the idols of this world become our attention, let our attention go to them, put our trust in them rather than the Lord, we're going to see consequences. We're going to see suffering. We're going to see penalties like the nation of Israel did instead of a life devoted to pursuing the things that are God. That's in a nutshell what Satan's saying to Christ. Worship me instead of the Father. Put your attention on me instead of the Father. And if you do that, I can give you this world. And he's right. The problem is not that he's lying. The problem is that what he's offering is terrible. If you want this world, you go down with it, in a sense. If you want the world that is to come, then you have to be willing to deny this one, though the next one is not in your possession yet. Not in reality. It is in truth. You're no less likely to get it, but it's not going to make itself seen and known for a time. You have to deny what you see for what you can't see. You have to deny what looks so appealing now for what you won't have an opportunity to be appealed by until you get there. But you know the difference and you're willing to wait. And so therefore, Satan's going to bring one more try. He didn't fail on... He failed on the first two. He's got one more chance, and so he brings one more. Satan again moves Jesus. Now we're told to the top of the temple. The temple in the day of of Christ, in the day of Herod's temple, was a huge structure. He's probably 60, 80 feet off the ground on top of the temple mount. And then Satan does what he often will do. He tries to use Scripture against Jesus. He hadn't done that in the first two attempts, but he now tries to do it. He quotes Psalms 91. Psalms 91 is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm talking of Christ, about the coming of Christ. It's good if you study this psalm because it will help you see how subtly Satan twists Scripture. How good he is at doing that. The psalm actually declares that the father will always care for his son, always ensure that he's able to complete his assigned mission, that he'll be protected from failing in that mission. But when Satan takes that Scripture and misuses it, he's going to leave out some important details. Why does he even care about using Scripture, by the way? Before we examine what he did with it, the better question is, why does he need to use Scripture? 
Well, first, it's going to give him some legitimacy, right? It seems to legitimize his point of view. But secondly, it appears to someone who gives Scripture respect that if somebody comes to you with Scripture as the basis for their argument, that you need to give them some attention, that you need to listen to what they have to say. The problem, of course, is we never actually test to see if they've got the Scripture right. They quote it, they say it's Scripture, and you go with it. Like the old one I've used often in here, that God gives to those who, you know, helps those who help themselves, right? There are a lot of people who run around in this world thinking that's in the Bible, because someone told them it was. It's not. And you know as well as I do that the opposite is true out of Scripture. God helps those who can't help themselves. So Scripture is being used by Satan as a way of legitimizing his message, but he's using it all wrong. And what he actually does here is he declares that the Father will always ensure that the Son never fails. So why don't you prove the Father's trustworthiness by trying to fail? Because that's essentially what jumping off this tower meant to Christ's earthly body. It meant suicide. It meant that if he did fall and reach the ground, he would physically have died. He's in the body you and I have. It's not going to survive an 80-foot fall most of the time. So it's a true test of God to keep his word if he were to jump over that wall. But if you were to read the psalm, particularly Psalm 91, verse 14, God says this, He's already declared how He will hold up His Son, how He will not allow Him to fall, how the angels will bear Him up. And then in verse 14, the Father says this, because, meaning I'm doing all these things because He, meaning Jesus, has loved Me, the Father. Because He has loved Me, therefore I will deliver Him. I will set Him securely on high because He has known My name. In other words, the reason the Father is willing to make that promise of upholding the Son is because He knows the Son loves Him and will not dishonor Him. But yet, if, ironically, Jesus had done what Satan had asked Him to do, He would have been contradicting the Scripture by not trusting, by not loving. He would have actually been doing opposite of what God said Jesus would do and therefore would earn His upholding. Satan was actually suggesting that by, over, by falling off this mountain you'll prove, or this temple, you'll prove that God is going to keep His word. And what God has said is, had Christ actually done that, He would have been allowed to hit the ground because He would have proved His unfaithfulness, His unwillingness to love and trust the Father. He wouldn't have been upheld if any of that could possibly have happened. But of course, none of those ifs did happen. Jesus responded to Satan and said, we're not to test God. We're not to try to make Him prove to us that He will keep His promises. And interesting again, God, uh, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, this same area in Deuteronomy. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And if you looked at the actual phrase, the actual verse he's quoting, Deuteronomy 6.16, it ends with this, as you tested him at Massah, meaning the nation of Israel, how they tested God at Massah. So in other words, Christ is making a quote from a previous scripture that was actually God admonishing the nation of Israel for having tested him. And warning them again, don't do that anymore. When the Jews tested God, it was at a point when they were thirsty. They wanted water. You know the story, I would assume. And there's the rock that Moses taps the stick on and water comes flowing out of this rock. Well, God was tested by them in that moment because though He had always provided for them, He had never failed them, and He said He would provide for them, in a moment, they get thirsty, they don't see any water, and they jump to the conclusion that here we are, and God's going to lead us here to die. Obviously, there's no water anywhere, so we must be ready to die right here. You know, forgetting that God separated the waters in the, in the Red Sea, 
had done miracle after miracle to get him here, but now the lack of surface water was too much for them. They're obviously going to die. And their complaints were essentially a declaration that they couldn't trust God. The story is in Numbers, but the best place to see a summary of this is in Psalms 95, which actually talks about this same event. Let me read you a few verses out of Psalms 95. Verse 6. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Mirabah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested Me. They tried Me, though they had seen My work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said that they are a people who err in their heart, for they do not know My ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. Those are harsh statements. God is saying that that whole generation did not know Him. They erred in their heart. They didn't believe in Him. And as a result, that testing that they kept doing over and over and over again was proof that they did not believe in what He told them. That they did not trust Him. And Jesus, had He thrown Himself off that pinnacle, the irony is, You and I might have seen that as proof he trusted God, right? Who would have jumped off except the man who trusted God would uphold him? You know how God sees that same moment? Proof you don't trust me. Proof that you need me to act in order to believe my words. And he wouldn't have acted. He would have allowed him to fall. When we begin to insist that God gives us proof that we can trust him, we anger him. We're provoking him, Scripture says. We're showing a lack of faith. And we're forgetting who we are and who God is. That He is not to be tested by us. It works the other way around. But of course, Jesus succeeded and Satan failed again. Jesus had endured 40 days of physical trial and constant temptation by the enemy. And He had showed Himself worthy to be the new Adam. Paul says this, one verse out of Romans. He says in Romans 5.19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. Christ's obedience he's referring to. You know, Satan withdrew, we are told there at the end, waiting for a more opportune time. We all know what that's referring to, of course. For that time that he would try to trip Jesus up again, but this time through other men, through evil men who would do his bidding. And ultimately be responsible for turning Christ in, putting him on the cross. The irony here again, though, is that that in itself was Christ displaying obedience. When Christ went to the cross, we're told he went willingly. That he willfully did something he knew was going to happen. That in itself was obedience to the Father, not Satan getting away with something. If Satan only knew what Christ's death on the cross meant, he never would have been a part of that plan. He thought he was winning when he was sealing his own fate. And finally, for the end of today, I want you to consider the lengths that the Father went to in this experience to demonstrate the superiority of His Son over Adam. That first man, Adam, he lived in ideal conditions. Conditions you and I have never seen since. Without any deprivation whatsoever. And he only had one rule to follow. Not the whole law. Only one rule. And he was never tempted by Satan. The woman was, but man is responsible. Adam's fall is the reason we have sinned. Not woman's. And that fall of man, of Adam, came without any temptation at all. He fell completely of his own volition. He only had a simple offer from his wife to eat something he knew he shouldn't have eaten. But with all of that, Adam couldn't obey. And then Jesus, he was starved nearly to death. 
put in the wilderness in harsh conditions, constantly tempted by Satan, and his obedience therefore required, required the greatest effort you could probably imagine, and he couldn't disobey. And so now it's our turn. We can tell God that our test is too difficult. But I want you to think back to today's lesson when that thought comes to mind. When you're facing some physical condition that you think is just too difficult to overcome, and it's your excuse. It's your excuse for giving in to temptation. It's the way I was raised. It's the way I was taught. It's the the pain I suffer is too great. The circumstances in my life just make obedience impossible. No one understands what I'm going through or they'd recognize that they can't expect me to do those kinds of things. Or the temptations I face, they're just so unreasonable. You have no idea how tempted they are. Or the devil made me do it, right? Or that our effort, it's not up to the test. We can't do it. We're just not capable. We just can't obey when God tells us to do what we should do. But the problem with all of that is our Lord has been there before you with an even greater test than you have ever seen. And He passed it with only the tools you have. With only the tools you have. The same body, the same Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The difference was He disciplined His body when we as a culture are so unwilling to do it. If we're willing to discipline the body though, then we can be led by the Spirit as easily as He was. It really is that simple. Simple, but yet it takes effort. Our own effort as well as the Holy Spirit. 